Welcome back to The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. Professor, good morning to you. Good morning to you. You're looking awfully spry this morning. What's going on in your life? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink you in. Thank you for the compliment. You're looking handsome as ever. You working out again? Oh, You always. look like uh, you're schvelt. It's, it's the year of health. What are you drinking over oh. there? You got something that looks like a concoction. It's my boy Jaime hooked me up with some Herba Mate. I got the official Argentinian setup, the official wooden cup and everything. So we've we've upgraded. We've upgraded our uh, facilities here. Ooh, look at you. Herba Mate. Um, that is... If I start bugging out of my that, eyes, that just means I've drank way too much. <laughs> is that a caffeinated cocktail oh, or what else? It's is got that? caffeine in it, yeah. And it's easy to drink much quicker than coffee. And it's much more hyper-focused than coffee, than uh, what coffee does to you. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I'm just uh, just normally caffeinated this morning. Just my, my run-of-the-mill you know, grocery store coffee bean. But why I'm probably glowing is, you know, today I usually look forward to whoever the guest is and, and you and I, you know, peppering them with questions. No guest today, professor. This is like our, our, it feels like every fourth episode we get to do just kind of our topical discussion, which I, I get, I get jazzed for. We get to kind of share some more thoughts. Oh yeah. It might, might bore the audience. I don't know, but it's definitely fun for, uh, for me just to sit here and riff off you. Yeah, well, you know, if you're bored, go play some golf. But this is, uh, I think I think we got a good one today too. This kind of emerged from uh, from some conversations we were having down in Georgia at our last competition and uh, and just the idea of, you know, new club. We're, we're, what, six years in and we're developing this golf society. And so society has rules and things that need to be followed. So we've set like very few rules at new club, but we have. And so I think, the, the topic today around rules and a term club goods you've used in the past, which I, I'm excited for. But before we get to, to all that, um, you got any factoids for our listener today? I do. This follows up a little bit on the, I think uh, with Dr. Mo, processed, processed food and hunger. I've mentioned sleep um, in the past. I'm going to combine the two. I finally got the reading. Um, I got the book right here. That's Why We Sleep. Everybody should read it. So I'm going to, you know, no free ads, but I'm giving a free ad here. Why We Sleep. Why Um, We Sleep. by Dr. Walker. So everybody should read that. But anyways, sleep and diet. So sleep is a huge contributor to diet. Um, And this is primarily through the hormones of leptin and ghrelin. I'm probably mispronouncing those, but leptin and ghrelin, right? All right. Leptin signals feeling full. Ghrelin signals hunger. So that's all you need to know about them, right? The more leptin in your system, you feel full. The more ghrelin in your system, you feel hungry. All right. Here's what happens with poor sleep. Decreases leptin while simultaneously increasing concentrations of ghrelin. So decreases your your full chemical hormone and it increases I'm hungry, right? So that's why after, after poor night's sleep, you often feel hungry. This also gets worse because it drives hunger for your processed snack foods by increasing the endocannabinoids. Um, think of marijuana. It's a similar chemical, um, what it does to your body. So it also increases that, which makes you seek out all the unhealthy foods. So all that is to say, again, sleep, very important, drives your metabolic system um, and really focuses on eating healthy and eating the right amount of caloric intake. Uh, so get your sleep out there. Uh, this 
The Sleep Evangelist. I think I'm just... You, the professor, it's fun because I know... Professor Moore, The Sleep Evangelist. I could just dig at you since you, you have the kids and I know yeah, you're not going to sleep. Yeah, I know. I think this is like, this is like a season-long gang up on Matt and just tell him how how screwed up his brain is because of his lack of sleep. Uh, that's, that is... I, I, I can, can say that like... Um, I know you've talked about how alcohol affects your sleep and I know that, you know, I, I try to get to Thursday without having a, a, a sip of alcohol and I usually do that well, but I've noticed on Friday, if I, if I have a few too many with the wife on Thursday, on Friday, I am reaching for like crap to eat. You know, usually I have a salad or something for lunch and working from home, it's, you know, pretty straightforward, but I'll be like, eh, that's do something else. Let's, let's get some grease in me or let's get, you know, it's the, the Doritos out or something. So I, I, uh, I know that's maybe alcohol related, but also probably sleep related because oh, yeah. I just don't sleep as well if I overdo it. Yeah. It's like a Interesting. double whammy there with alcohol and what that does in terms of your dopamine system. That's also being triggered that next day. So. Well, thank you for keeping us smart professor, keeping us, uh, astute to the, the effects of these things. Um, Hey, professor, we have a new Sponsor of the podcast, a new supporter, a new partner. I'm really excited for this Is one. Is it Mountain Dew? They've been on any guesses. They've been a part of this podcast for, I think, three years now. Uh, but you haven't heard from them just yet. We're already into June. And the reason you haven't heard from them is because there was a date change with this particular event. Oh, well, so it's a new- longtime listener. You're a, you're a recent host, but you're a longtime listener. Any idea? Does it have anything to do with the logo on your shirt right now for those? I, mean, ah, you got, I got it. Pod, but what are you wearing? The Western Golf Association is back with the NV5 Invitational. They are coming to the Glen Club in Glenview, Illinois. Uh, so they got a new date for the event. It's July 25th through 30th, all the big stars of the Corn Ferry Tour. This is kind of like a major on the Corn Ferry Tour. Um, I think partially because it's run by the Western Golf Association and they always do a fantastic job of, of setup. You need to look no further than the BMW Championship and what they've done the last few years. You know, it's like it's like that elevated event that I know all these Corn Ferry Tour guys um, look forward to. We're going to have one of them on the show here coming up. But uh, July 25th through 30th, the 2023 MV5 Invitational presented by Old National Bank, the Chicago area's only annual professional golf championship. You can get upgraded hospitality tickets that are now available. Uh, you can enjoy a day at the hangar. This is what I recommend, which, you know, walking the course is always great. Going and seeing uh, get these guys up close and personal. You don't have to fight crowds. It's really a unique experience. But the Corona per- Premier Hangar is, uh, is a blast. <laughs> it's a bunch of golf geeks hanging out by the 18th green, and uh, it's where all the action happen. So I, I do recommend upgrading your ticket if you make it out to the event. Uh, grounds admission is only 20 bucks. It's only 20 bucks and you get to watch some of the very best players in the world. To secure your tickets, to see golf's future stars, go ahead and register online at nv5invitational.com. So professor, do you know, I know you work with a lot of the guys on on those minis and corn ferry tours. you know anybody going this year um, to the nv I would assume my, my dogs are going out there. So I'm going to give out the shout out to Spencer Ralston, Trent Phillips, um, several other guys um, out on that tour. You know, I would be hanging out on the 18th. Hole, I'll tell you what, just hoping that one of them is going to be coming down the stretch and, and getting that win. Um, I think it's going to be short time to see Spencer or Trent doing that uh, out there. 
It was been so cool with our, our partnership with the Western golf association. It's there's some really great guys that just love the game of golf that run that thing. They, uh, uh, I, we, first year we did this, like the, the, the read and kind of, kind of bringing some attention to this corn Ferry tour event. Uh, a little guy by the name of Scotty Scheffler won, you know, who won the next year, Will Zalatoris, you know, who won two years after that, Cameron Young. So like when I, I mean, say the rising stars of the PJ tour, I'm not just talking about like your, your, oh, these guys are going to get a tour card. We're talking about literally these guys are catching fire and you get to watch it. And then they're going to be masters champions and they're going to be world number ones. Like it's, it's uh, it really is something I really enjoy going to every single year. So hope to see more of you guys out there. Thank you to NB5 Invitational. Thanks to the Western Golf Association for supporting the pod, being a, a partner. Um, also, Professor, I want to draw a little attention before we get to the topic of today. The golf, the, the society shop at New Club. I mean, I'm not one to brag, but it is making leaps and bounds. There's a bunch of good stuff in there. And if you're a member of New Club, you always, 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 always get 20% off of anything in the shop. So go check it out. That's one you can't beat that for consistency on 20% off of these premier products. It's all fresh, good stuff. We got uh, head covers from EP. This stuff is absolute fire. Our, our all square or match play series, really some cool, cool stuff there. Uh, task, if you are a golfer and haven't discovered the brand task. There's a lot of guys wearing it out on tour. You have to feel this. You have to put it in your hand. It is the most comfortable golf apparel I have worn to date and you got to get something. So go check out Tass. We got other greats from Holderness and Born, hats from Imperial and American Needle. There's a bunch of stuff in there, but uh, if you're not a member of New Club, go check it out. If you are a member of New Club, 20% off. Go go get yourself some fresh goodies for as we roll into the summer season. I feel uh, well, professor, I feel insulted a little bit. I've been asking about that task hoodie and now you're telling me it's back in stock and I'm just getting the news now. We'll see. That's, you know, I mean, well, it's it's going to be gone now. I, I, I told everybody I, I, else about it. I'm <laughs> glad we're recording right now. So when the members are hearing this and the listeners are hearing this, I've already bought my 12 task hoodies. So... <laughs> 12, yeah, I, I think you don't play enough golf, Professor, to, to buy 12 I, hoodies. But I wear, ah, that's Professor gear right there. I can teach in a hoodie. I can golf in a hoodie. It's the most versatile um, clothing in my arsenal. <laughs> well, on the topic of hoodie, I think that's a good transition. So tell us about this concept, Kevin, of club goods. I think in my head, this is really a discussion around uh, golf clubs and society and what our policies are and what civility is and, and all these kind of rules, both spoken and putting down on paper and then the rules that are unspoken. And we're just supposed to kind of figure out as, as golfers. And I think we had a great conversation around it, but you had this um, introduction to it around uh, uh, club goods. And and I want I want to hear kind of where where this came to from you? Yeah. So, I mean, for a long time, I've been sort of anti-rule-based for several reasons. I think part of it's just being academic in me. You know, we're in a more liberal type of institution, so we automatically push back against rules. But honestly, I was reading, so you brought up Club Goods. I was reading the book Dopamine Nation. Um, and this is one of the things that's changed my mind a little bit on rules and what what they can, and the role they can play in terms of anything, society, a competition, a, a club. Um, but the idea of club goods is 
it revolves around the uh, around the idea of showing commitment to something. Um, so within Dopamine Nation, I think the example was within Alcoholics Anonymous, and I might be getting the specific details of this incorrect, but the overall principle holds, uh, I believe, that they have very stringent rules all the way down to if you rinse your mouth with mouthwash that has alcohol in it, I mean, even if you spit it out, right? Like you just, oh, really quick, you know, it was in your tra- airline travel bag, spit it out. You have to report that to the group. Like you have to own up to it and say, I don't know what you say, but you have to own up to it, right? And a lot of people might think that's ridiculous. You didn't consume alcohol. Like why, why is that a thing? And this is what is called a club good. It's something that it's a signifier of you sacrificing something about yourself to be a part of that group, to show commitment mm-hmm. to that group and to show, no, I'm willing to do something that maybe doesn't matter the action itself of what I did, but me owning up to it does signify something that does contribute something to our group. So that reading that I was like, oh, wow, like that gives me a new spin on rules. It's like rules that we'll get into, obviously, that are exclusionary on their basis. So why I'm typically like, I'd like to reject rules because they're often exclusionary. Uh, but I think it's very different from rule now from rules that are like, no, this is me putting aside my own individuality in order to contribute to the group and be and show my unity with the group. Uh, yeah, so that's where this yeah. idea, I mean, for the, this podcast episode came from. And yeah, it, it, honestly, that idea changed my mind completely about rules in terms of how I think yeah, about them. I th- yeah, I think our our generation is, is quick to dismiss the rules. And I, I j- talked about the hoodie and the joking, and I think there's a similarity there. And we can go, maybe we start this with dress code policies, you know, at at golf clubs and country clubs and golf courses. Um, I think that civility is is a it, it is that signal to others that like, hey, I, I'm a contributing participant in this whole thing, this ecosystem, and I'm not a threat to you, and and you know we're in a safe place. I think that you use the word exclusionary. I think that's where it crosses the line, right? And it becomes something else. And um, I think your AA is is an interesting example because. Uh, that that's a slippery slope for for a very specific reason, right. though, right? That those are people that have a problem. Mm-hmm. I guess you'd have to say that, like, you know, people that are wearing hoodies on the golf course have a problem, and we can't allow them because they're going to hit a slippery slope, and then they're going to be wearing denim cutoff jeans with holes in tank you know? tops. And I, I mean, think, <laughs> dude, yeah, tank tops. What else? But I think that's the the concern of the establishment or the old traditional. Uh, uh, landscape of golf, right? Is that, oh, if we do allow hoodies, I don't think they have an issue with hoodies. I think they have an issue with what comes next after hoodies. And that's, that's scary to them of like losing that, uh, civility, losing that, that tradition. Yeah. So Matt, like as a starter of new club golf society, you and Mark have had to think about rules. So maybe let's kick it to you here. Like where are you at in rules in golf? And if you want to situate that with the new club or broader, let's start there. Oh, man. Uh, do I want to go broader? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think there's, um, there's the signal to others and then there's the, the, the reality of, of what, it, what it is, right? And, and I think, I'll, I'll talk personally before I get to, to new club. Let me just talk personally because here's another analogy similar to your mouthwash uh, AA rules and having to report that. Uh, the idea of a yard, 
the yard, the front yard, or in and you know a turf grass yard. Traditionally, it came from uh, uh, the uh, aristocrats or the the feudal system in the UK, where if you had money, you had a yard, and that yard was maintained by by servants. And um, and so I I can't remember what book I was reading this in. I think it was actually uh, uh, what was it? Nature's Best Hope. So I, I told you I've been on this environmental yeah. kick and being you know I lived twenty years in the city didn't have a yard. Now I have a yard. So I got to think about these things, but you see in, in my neighborhood, everybody has this perfect pristine yard. And there's actually one company that kind of takes care of everybody as well. I didn't hire that company. And now that we're in this past the spring and you know, all these, all the things have budded and all the things have grown. I got a pretty ridiculous yard compared to theirs. Like I got weeds growing, I got daisies, I got these things, but I do have an aspiration to have a, a, um, a more natural yard, right? And, and I'm reading about it and I'm learning about it and I don't want to use pesticides. Part of this is my golf interest of what superintendents do. And, and we're going to have some folks on the podcast to talk about that. But back to rules and, and why I think this is interesting for, for a, a metaphor for golf is what is that about? That perfect you know, pesticide-fueled front yard. What is that really about? It's about a signal to your neighbors that I can be trusted, that this is a safe place, that I am a rules-abiding citizen and you should not fear me. And that is what it is really about. If you break down the psychology of it and why we all spend all this money to keep our yard. It, my yard is going to be just fine for kids and everything. It looks like shit, but it's it's going to be, you know, fine. Why should I then, and I, I have actually had neighbors already, but like, hey, uh, if you need a, a yard guy, I can, uh, you know, he, he came, treats my my property five times a year. He'll take care of all that crabgrass. Part. I was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just, I'm just trying to sell in. And the reason I, I say this as an intro of my personal feelings around rules is who's the rule for? Who's the rule for? Is it, is it really benefiting stuff or is it just signaling? Is it a signal to everyone else of these cultural things? I want to give you one more example that as it comes to mind as we talk about this. And this relates to dress code. Uh, Seneca. Are you familiar with Seneca at all? The, uh, the philosopher, uh, Greek philosopher, stoicism. I'm if, not. Anybody that's worked in tech had a stoicism phase, right? Where you, you discover Justin Holiday. He is a great writer, yeah. but you go through this stoic stuff. And, and uh, shout out to all my, my tech bros out there. You guys are, are all in this bucket. You've done this sto stoicism bucket. But one of, the, one of the things that Seneca famously did was he, in society, in, in Greek society of all these aristocrats and all these well-to-do people that were very powerful and and well-known, he would dress in rags. He would dress mm. as badly as he yep. could. And what he was trying to teach himself, Kevin, was I do not need, and I think his quote was, I do not need their useless opinions of me. And, and I think one of these things with rules is we're just all kind of playing a game to make sure that people think highly of us. Golf shirts with collars, um, um, you know, certain, certain brands and apparels, they are status symbols. So I, I personally, and this will lead to, to our thoughts on new club and, and where our rules have developed, but I personally hate rules that are status symbols. I hate rules that are exclusionary for the purpose of being exclusionary. I think there is an internal confidence that people need to have in themselves and their individuality. And then I think other people need to have enough confidence to not be threatened by that, but to celebrate that. So when it comes to dress code, 
and and this this has big opportunity for hypocrisy for me, and I'm aware of that. Uh, but I want people to feel comfortable and be themselves. So if if that means joggers in a hoodie, then that means joggers in a hoodie. If that means pleated khakis with a stripe striped polo shirt and and uh, uh, imperial hat, then that's that's what they they they're going to be comfortable. And I think that's what more clubs need to to understand. Now, there is that that signal and that respect to others that you know the the is the tank top and the cut jeans that you put you know no effort into is that uh, disrespectful to others? I I don't know. I, I think uh, uh, it, it obviously gets in in. Um, uh, interpreted that way, but I, I just think that uh, that people should be comfortable that they don't need to to uh, uh, be excluded with these these rules and and uh, dress code is just one one of those examples. But uh, but I also and this is where the hypocrisy the tie like I love club ties. This is a UK thing that we've adopted at New Club brooches and ties for our members. If we do our formal events, we require that. But I think that's what's yeah. Let me like hypocrisy is always going to exist in anything that has a social construct to it, right? Like you cannot help but be hypocritical if it's a social construct because you're going to have exceptions. You're always going to say, yeah, here I want this, here I don't. I think the important aspect is: do you have logical reasoning behind it? Do you have a rationale for those distinctions? And to your point. Hopefully that rationale is not just to be exclusionary and like force people out and bring these people in, that there's actually other reasons for that. So let me push you on that. Like, what about that tie situation or whatever? What's unique or different about that? Because what I hear from you, maybe not explicitly so far, is like you're pushing back against a traditional country club dress code. Just, oh, you need to wear your khakis and your collared shirt. And if you're upstairs, you need to have your jacket in. in. Yeah, tuck your shirt in. Don't wear your hat inside. You're kind of pushing back on some of those maybe traditional ones, but then boom, okay, tie, club tie or something like that. Yes. To you, what makes those different? Clarity. There's my my answer. Uh, That was a great question. And I think, oh, let's use an example. Ely Golf Club yeah. on the peninsula of Fife, uh, right? Little, little unknown golf course. I know you and I played it together. We're both big fans of that. The last round of the trip. Um, yeah. Yeah. Last round of our of our international trip last year, yeah, through Scotland. And uh so so what's the policy there? What's their dress code policy at Ely Golf Club? It's uh long socks. Like long socks. Does it have to be a specific <laughs> yeah. color even? I think at time maybe a specific color, but maybe not anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I, and and so it's absurd, right? And I loved it. Kansas City Country I Club. I absolutely loved it. Kansas City Country Club also has that. They have a they have a high socks. And, and, and for those listening, it's not that you have to wear high socks. You can wear pants or high socks. And this comes from, you know, the club was probably started in the late 1800s. There's some tradition that they held on to. What I loved, and, and I think I wouldn't have loved it, honestly, Kevin, if, because, uh, you know, on the surface, I thought it was silly. But to my point on clarity, when a club is excruciatingly clear and doesn't like, doesn't kind of make you figure it out, Hmm. They they expect you to understand their hundred year old tradition when you have zero context to it, and then they yell at you when you don't do it. Ely Golf Club was not that at all. Ely Golf Club, when uh, you know, I made the bookings, I made sure that everyone was aware that this was the the policy, and they tell you, 
and they tell you and they kind of, you know, he, he, the, the, I even talked to uh, someone there on the phone and he had some fun with it. And he, he even mentioned, he goes, now I know a lot of people don't even own high socks. So if you do, you can buy them for one Euro <laughs> or one, one pound in the pro shop, something, something simple like that. And, and he goes, but just remind people, it's going to be pants weather anyways. We, you know, wear pants. And I, I didn't take effect. I thought it was silly, but here's where it came around for me. And I, and we got very fortunate that there was members playing a match on the club. You know, I can't remember what club they were hosting. It was some club from, uh, was it Woolburn? Um, somewhere no, Denim. From, Denim. Denim. So, so, so in England, Denim, uh, another, you know, great historic golf club, they were playing a match and these guys were a hoot. And they, in the way that that Ely routes, you, you interact with multiple groups, like multiple times. It's one of the coolest routings I've ever played. And so we were just having this like ongoing four hour conversation with multiple groups in their matches. And every time they check in with every single one of our groups, like, how you boys liking the course? You know, how's it going? Everything. And they were having a blast and their dogs were with them and they all were wearing these ridiculous high socks. And, uh, and, And I think most of our group was wearing pants, but a couple of us threw on the socks. And, and they like, included us in that tradition and they gave us a hard time about that tradition and they were playful about that tradition. And I I think where, when you're not in on the joke or you're not in on the tradition, you feel like you are the joke. You feel like you've been attacked and that your individuality is not good enough for this place and that you're a lesser golfer, a lesser human being. And a lot of clubs, I think, almost do that on purpose. And that sucks. That's shitty. And they shouldn't do that. This club and this membership felt like they knew how silly this kind of tradition was, but they were going to explain it to you. They were going to be very clear about it with you. And they were still going to ask it of you. And then when you don't do it, they'll give you a hard time and they'll make you buy socks for a pound. But then you're in part of that tradition. And now we all have those stories of playing Ely Golf Club and this this great tradition that we'll tell for, for decades. We'll tell that story, right? About the socks at Ely. And and I think that is is inclusive. That's the opposite. It's it's it could it has high high potential to be very exclusive. To be, let's make guests feel stupid or let's keep guests out. You yeah. know, let's that's, that's, that's be honest. A lot of people do these these policies to keep people out. I didn't get that sense at all with this this thing at uh, at Ely with these socks, and and I think the ties are kind of similar in that. Where for a new club we have uh, a, a limited amount of events, our formals, where we ask you to put on a tie. Or if you're a, a, a female member, we ask you to, to you know meet that dress code. Put on. We're, we're going to go with like brooches or something because we're going to um, have everybody have club ties or club brooches, things that represent you as a member of this club. And I think that's okay as long as we're exceptionally clear about it and why we do it and the, that we've done it since the beginning and it's respectful of the golf clubs that came before us that that you know connect on the same thing. So that's wow. That's clarified several aspects of the the rules and dress code, a uh, specific dress code, particularly in terms of clubs. Like the one thing that stood out there is you use the word tradition a lot. And I think a lot of that comes with honor. Like there's an honor to following your club's code in that way, right? Like of we wear socks or like, I was thinking of at the new golf club um, in St. Andrews, like, hey, when you're here for dinner, you wear the club tie. Like that's that's what you do, right? There's an honor to that, that you're you're beholden to the club. And I think something that stands out there too is those are, each of the, the examples we're giving, they're unique. 
And I think that's very different from the generic dress code that's typically in place. And I would say that generic dress code of collared shirt, khakis, is not at all a way to honor the traditions of the club or anything like that. It is an exclusionary thing. Like, no, you need to do this to be like us. Like, if you don't do this, mm-hmm. then, like, no, you're not, you're not playing, right? And there's no, like, oh, this is what we do, and let me invite you in to participate in this with us because here's your socks, put them on. Now we can joke about it. Versus like, no, you need to go buy that $90 golf shirt because you don't have a collar on. So you need to go do that if you're going to the first tee. That's that's a huge distinction of like, we're going to invite you in and you can enjoy this with us versus, no, well, we're not going to talk to you and entertain you until you go put that shirt on. Those That's very, very different. Is it, could you argue that polos and khakis are a tradition of golf? Maybe. Because I, I mean, I don't know the history. I mean, I don't know the history. I mean, they used to wear suits when they played. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They they used to wear, you know, their uh, their tweed sports coats and and ties, and that kind of went to the wayside. Um, so maybe it's just a ongoing evolution of yeah. that. But I, I guess you could make the argument that, like, hey, this is a tradition of golf to wear khakis and, and polos and tuck in your shirt. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, if that is the historic roots that sure, like we could entertain that argument and is that appropriate or not? I mean, at, at this point, it's, it's so generic that, I mean, traditions evolve and when they become super generic, that's when it's time to abandon a tradition typically, right? When it's become so encompassing and so huge, it's no longer a tradition, it's just a thing. Um, I would say that's when it's time to, to reconsider it. But I would suspect that tradition, even the suit coat tradition might have more to do with like who's playing the game and a sign of, of status than anything else, right? Like the club tie yeah. thing, obviously we could go back to ties even being a sign of status, but at the club tie, yep. just going to dinner, yep. like, because that's what you do when you go to dinner to signify your, your, your role at the club, I, I think is a different enactment of it than just a generic, hey, every country club, when you go to dinner, you wear a tie versus the club tie, you know? The, right, right. The, the, yeah, that that's the, the actual club tie is what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I'm not in, in favor of, of just the, the formality of ties. I'm in favor of put on your club tie, the thing that represents your community yeah. and share that. That's that. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. This is where that. the hypocrisy is there. Like we're saying, yeah, you should wear a tie, but no, you shouldn't at the same, like I just have to at the same yeah. time. That's yeah. naturally like, you got to draw a line somewhere in, in life and society. Lines get drawn and moved all the time. So I think that's why you just have to have a deep conversation around it. Yeah, yeah. The, can I hit my other bugaboo with rules? Yeah, throw it out. I want to see some passion from from you this morning. Uh, yeah. I, I, this one does fire me up. And I just came back from Ireland and, and it, it really hit home. But I, I'll broadly state this one around rules that are important uh, implied to, uh, um, to create status, to create uh, a class system, even, even more directly. And I think golf clubs have really fallen victim to this where, um, I don't know why it's coming to mind, but Augusta and caddies wearing white jumpsuits. It's, it's just a big bugaboo to me because mm-hmm. it's just this, this symbol of, uh, of lesser than, you know, my favorite golf clubs in the world uh, the Dunes Club, uh, all the all the Bandons and Cabots in Ireland and Scotland. What do they make their caddies wear? 
mean, maybe a, same maybe, thing maybe a club bid. It's just a yeah, it maybe yeah. It's just, maybe, just to hold things and and but to indicate who your caddy is. Not always. But they're wearing what we wear, yeah. right? They're just they're people. I mean, they're wearing <laughs> they're there golf rain jackets if you're in Scotland. I mean, bingo. Yeah, yeah. And so I just I have this big bugaboo around. Uh, rules that create a class system and are intentional in creating a class system. I've had to, th- here, here's another one I've had to think a lot about this week. Again, just came back from 10 days in Ireland. It's a no tipping country hmm. for the most hmm. part. There's a few, few jobs that aren't. There's a no tipping country. I really started thinking about tipping and then it hit me at the wrong time, but we had a, a, uh, this might be a slightly longer story, but get, bear yeah, with me, uh, audience. Go into but, tipping. Bear with me, what, listener. Yeah, go into tipping because I have some strong thoughts on tipping too. So take a second. Right. So so I, I just came back and, and the service was adequate everywhere we went, right? But it wasn't pampered in Ireland. People don't, you know, wait on you hand and foot. They don't follow you around. They treat you like an adult and they tell you where to go. And they're very clear about where to go and what to do and policies. They don't you know, uh, uh, wait on your hand and foot. And that's a cost thing too. And that's where I get to this, this tipping. I didn't tip for that service. We got adequate service and, and people seemed happy to do their jobs. And, and, and that is how their cultural culture works. Well, I'm going to give you a, a, a recent example from new club. We had a group to, uh, uh, a prominent country club in, in a golf club in, in Illinois. And, uh, and they were not very clear about their tipping policies. Now they were a tipping club and they require caddies and every one of us tipped our caddies, but we got grief from this, this foursome that left without tipping the outside staff. And of course I responded with, oh no, that's terrible, right? These guys yeah. don't make very much. They're, they're uh, schlepping bags out of cars and throwing them on. And we're guests at that club and tipping as a tipping club. If that's your policy, then we want to tip. We want to make sure that, you know, it's a good experience for not only our members that are playing at this club and are welcomed guests for the day, but also the staff, the staff feels good about like, Hey, we gave this this group a good experience and and here's a few extra bucks for that. We're not talking about a lot of money, but the way that it was, it was uh, called out for us and saying like, you know, how ridiculous it is that no one tipped. Well, I, I clarified that everybody tipped their caddies and my point to this, and it goes back to clarity. How the hell were they to know? Like that is a mandatory tip. And, and, and it really got me thinking about this tipping culture and, and the clubs that rely on that. And could you make the argument that they should pay their people adequately where tips aren't required, right? Isn't that just passing the buck? Isn't that just asking your, your customer to do what the employer should? Now, I know that those things have to be built into the cost of your services, but that's what happens in Scotland and Ireland. It's adequate. I tried to over tip a caddy that I thought was a phenomenal caddy. He wouldn't even take the extra mm-hmm. tip in Ireland because he's like, what are you doing? Uh, it's like, no, I signed what, what I signed up for. I carried your bag for four, for four hours. We had a great time. You shot your best round. I don't need extra money. I know what I, that is an adequate tip. Thank you. He gave me back 20 euro. I thought about that contrast of like what our culture is here. And it just infuriated me, Kevin. Cause I'm like, I think we got it backwards. I think we're so far lost. I think if you are a tipping club, make that exceptionally clear. My preference, though, is probably now, as the more I've, I've started to digest this, and I, who knows, I might flip on this in the future, but 
a non-tipping club that pays their people well, that respects their people, that gives them appropriate time off, that sets boundaries and sets rules and makes sure that everyone is valued from a guest to a member to a staff, isn't that better than the kid that relies on the, the rich guy to, to slip him a hundo every so often? Isn't that better? Isn't that a healthier life? Isn't that like you don't have to worry about the group coming in and do, are we going to tell them they need a mandatory tip? Can we get, like, I just, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot this week. And, and so tipping isn't necessarily a rule per se. It's more of a social construct, but yeah. I, I wanted to bring it up with you and get your thoughts on tipping. Uh, you know, is, do you remember our trip to Ireland back in 2005, I guess it was, the bartender situation? No. So we tried to tip a bartender there and he got offended. Like, was like, this This is my job. I poured, he put a little shamrock in my Guinness and that's, I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, here you go. And he's like, he was legit offended. Tourist, he was legit offended. Yeah, he was legit offended. He's like, this is my job. Like, I'm doing my job to the level which I think I should do it. And you're giving me money as if I shouldn't be doing it that way. It's like, he, like I was like, that stood out to me. I was like, yeah, that's brilliant, right? Um, but the uh, go ahead. I know I tried to cut you off, but I was going to say on the the restaurant side, the other thing that uh, our group commented on was, man, these waiters and waitresses and bartenders, they're uh, they're not that warm. They're not like uh, making small talk with us. And I started thinking about that, and I go. Think about how inauthentic every restaurant situation you have. And I've worked, I was a bus boy. I wasn't really front of, of, of the restaurant, you know, relying on the tips, but I, I got flow over from the waitresses and, and their stuff. But there is this like inauthentic bullshit relationship that exists because of tipping, because that is implied that if I smile at this group and I, you know, give them this, but it's not real. It's not a real conversation. It's not a real relationship. It is them doing their job and putting on a show so that they guarantee their act. So in Ireland, and this is what the group uh, uh, acknowledged a couple of times was like, that, yeah, that doesn't exist here. I wonder why. Because there's no tip, man. They're just doing their job and they don't want to be bothered. But but then then you actually have a real conversation yeah. with them eventually. And you have a real relationship with them eventually. And that is like the, the difference. And um, I, I got to learn more about other cultures too. Because like my, my point of reference is really UK and here. And I know there's a bunch of other in between and, and how tipping's handled in other parts of the world. Yeah, and obviously we could spend a whole episode just on tipping in general in terms of labor rights. You brought up some of that. Just treat your, your labor ship correctly, right? And pay them a living wage. And we could go deep into that. We could go into the history of tipping and how it actually its roots are in aristocrats and chasing being you know, fancy and rich, and also it's roots in slavery, especially in the United States, like huge roots in slavery and like getting around slavery issues to act like their people are being paid, but they're not actually getting paid for the work, all sorts of stuff there, which also then has roots in Europe, a lot of Europe's rejection of tipping. They were high tipping, said spending- It's where it came from, yeah, right? from the Tudor, the Tudors or whatever, right? But then as America's adopted it, actually a lot of your, your, and with the ties of slavery, a lot of European countries rejected it, right? And they are now evolved to not having tipping. So we could dive into that. We can dive into everybody's arguments why, for why we should have tipping. Research has showed predominantly none of those exist and actually the opposite happened, right? Like, oh, you'll get better service. The workers will work harder, like yada, yada, yada. Like none of that's true, right? 
tipping overly is overly biased to males often, right? Like it just propagates social bias. Like, and you also have females predominantly working in tipping industries. So like it just it contributes to different wage gap issues and so on. We could go on to that. Not this episode. Like the point you hit on and that always strikes me about tipping is it, it's also a signal from the, the tipper, right? Of like, hey, if you give me extra care and attention, I'm going to give you some extra money, right? Like, hey, hold my hand and get me stuff and do stuff for me. And I, it just goes back, I might, I might have said this on a pretty episode, like, uh, why do people feel the need to be catered to so much in life? Like, why do they feel the need to be taken care of when you go to a golf club? As if you you need to have your door the door open for you, your golf bag carried over. Like, why do you need to, like, what is it about, like, some, some people love that. And this is just something I can't decenter and get. Like, I get the principle, but I can't understand why people love having their hands held so much, like, to be like, do you want them to wipe your butt too? Like to be frank, right? Like, oh, I, I, that's what I don't understand. And tipping to me is wrapped up into that. Like, hey, if you take extra care of me, if you take more care of me than you take care of Matt, I'm going to tip you. Because it also like, re- it reeks of that, right? Like, hey, give me that extra care. And yeah. Yes. Like, and I just, yeah. I disagree with that too. I don't think that's a healthy work environment for the employee, especially like, it's just not good, and it's. I think it's also not good for the the club, like a the club. Like if it's a, in a club system, like oh, because that guy tips the starter a hundred dollars, he gets better tea times than me, like because he makes a million a year, and I'm on a professor salary, and I can't afford to do that. That's that's what we're gonna do. Like right. that's that's not cool. I, I that's such a great point, and. Uh, the predominant, you know, country club, golf club mentality is uh, I've worked hard to be here. I, I've paid a lot of money to be here. Now take care of me. And and that that in itself becomes exclusionary down the road because you're just only going to have people that can afford $100,000 uh, downstrokes and uh, $1,000 dues a month. And and so your your uh, your club becomes very homogenous and, and then it becomes folks that uh, do want all white glove service right and uh and there's different variety of different clubs but more have trended that direction and and less the uh uk euro you know uh other model of self-service and keeping costs low i think the cost side that's one thing and i know i will probably save this the tea story for another episode professor i know we're talking to the casey brothers um here in a couple weeks about ireland so i'll save it for them but but there's a lot of waste in a lot of these rules and, and policies on the, the country club side. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Have you ever been to a club that doesn't have a menu? Hmm. Very few. Like, and I've seen two spectrums. I've seen um, a spectrum where you can order anything and you're going to get it. But then I've also seen the spectrum where we don't have a menu, but we have like four things, right? Like, okay. Yeah. Like I've so seen the both. one I'm so, talking yeah, about. I'm guessing you're going, we have everything that you want. Or maybe you're, yeah, the other one, everything. like Kingsley Club, I think they may not have a menu and they have like an egg sandwich and a hamburger. That's, you know, that's what you're getting. But yeah, I used to think, and this is my maturity as uh, uh, a person, I think, as a golfer, I used to think that was the coolest thing ever. I was like, whoa, I can sit down and I can order a steak and I can order a burger. And I can order a turkey club and I can make up my own thing and they're going to bring it out. Mm-hmm. And lobster bisque, whatever. Think about how effing wasteful that is. 
And, and and these are premier clubs. Don't get me wrong. They are after, they are chasing the status thing. So that I don't think they would be any, they, they would say our intention isn't to be a place that's welcoming and open right. and everything else and, and, and cost effective and, and bringing down our, our price point forever. They have very wealthy people that can afford this, but I just, I just can't get past the fact of how wasteful that was. And I will, I will, con, um, Contrast this with a place we just were, Naren Port New, owned by an Irish American named Liam. Uh, I'm blocking on Liam's last name. I met the guy on the first tee. Such a great guy. Has done exceptionally well. Could have turned this place into a private golf oasis, which like Hogshead has done that and some others. And he got pushed really hard. He didn't want to do that. He has this beautiful out of place. It looks like it belongs in the Hamptons that he built this clubhouse on a very, a farmland links golf course, uh, renovated by Gil Hans. So pretty special, mm -hmm. not that cheap, you know, fair price out there in, in, uh, is it Donegal? It's, it's out there. And, um, it, and just a remarkable day, everything we get done this menu, Kevin, four things, four things. And the staff was a server that also worked in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And and I just thought about the cost and, and and just by talking to him, I got this sense of what kind of person he was and what kind of club he aspired to. And, and our caddies, by the way, sat right next to us and had lunch, had a beer with us. There's no status here. There's not, none of that bullshit. And, and I just, what crossed my mind in this like rules discussion, this guidelines discussion, these social norms is here's a place that isn't going to waste a damn penny. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they are, uh, utilitarian almost both from their pro shop has that feel to their, uh, their clubhouse and, and their caddies are treated with respect. And, and, uh, the menu had four things. And a lot of people viewed that as a negative, uh, right? You know, our American bias is I need more than this, but they had a soup, a sandwich, a fish and chips and a salad. And I loved it. I was just like, what else do you need guys? It, it, the golf course is what we're here for. The people is what we're here for. Uh, the beer is on tap and, and th there was no waste there. So I think about these courses that have these menus that you could order anything. Out. Do you know how much they're probably throwing out? Like oh, having yeah. to have on hand all that stuff. I can't imagine what waste that is. And it just, it, it, it just is so pointless to me. Um, anyways, well, that, the, that's just one other. The food wasting, I mean, we could tie in related to your, you know, you're deep diving lately on just golf course sustainability and the amount of food waste. Like I definitely have a problem with food waste because, so, okay. So let's walk it back for a half second here. Like, you know, some places their prerogative is to make a lot of money, right? And, and they'll waste, they'll waste food and all that to make a lot of money. They'll just write it, you know, you write that $250,000 initiation check and that's covering that food waste for the, you know, the next foreseeable future. And I, and I get it. Like, yeah, some places just want to make a lot of money and they're going to do a lot of things that's going to be growth and getting bigger and excess and waste and so on and so forth. But then the day I always come back to, and, and that's fine. Some people love that. They want to be pampered. They want that huge clubhouse. They want the, the, the unlisted menu, yada, yada, yada. Fine. Go enjoy that. But for me, at the end of the day, you use the word authenticity. Like, that's what I look for in a place is authenticity, right? Which strips down things to the bare bones that you don't need this huge menu, that your caddy should be sitting next to you. They weren't sitting there next to you because you tipped them, right? They were sitting there because like, you're a bunch of golfers that play golf at this awesome place. Let's just sit there and talk and they're allowed to sit there and talk and do that, right? Not everything has to be about making money, 
making something that's bigger, create because when you do that, you're going to naturally create a class system. Even if you intend not to, you're going to create a class system if you start getting bigger and bigger profits and bigger and bigger social structures. It's just going to happen. Um, so I always appreciate the, the places out there that aren't striving to do that, that they're just striving to give an authentic golf experience that's stripped down and say, hey, come here, play golf, talk to the people that's here, and that's that's what we do. Like you don't don't, ex- word, don't expect anything else, right? The word we use in golf course architecture is restraint. Yeah, it's restraint. It's easy to say, oh, another guy asked us for uh, an expanded menu, or another guy asked us for free tees, or another guy asked us for um, you know golf buggies, and and it's it's easy to give into that because you want to make people happy and you want to make more money, but. What are you making your club? How many? And that's and that comes down to to you, you asked me multiple times, and I've dodged the question. New clubs approach to clubs. First off, we we do it with a captain's committee, and we have these vice captains that you're a part of, and and they vote and and take uh, you know democracy meritocracy is kind of our approach, right? It does this make sense? Does this make sense for the majority of members? Is this inclusive for all of our members? And and so our rules right now, and we have to add some, some. we have to, and, and I don't want to add too many because I think that one of a beautiful quote, I can't remember, maybe it was Robert Hunter or somebody said, uh, the best clubs have few rules held strictly. Yeah. And so that's kind of been our approach, right? So there's three new club rules every time you play golf with new club. They're play ready golf, and we define what ready golf is, not waiting for someone else to hit your golf shot. If you are standing there, you can play away. Uh, never re-tee, meaning play everything as a lateral drop or in the middle of the fairway with two strokes. We, we explain that. That's, that's never re-tee, keep it moving. And, uh, and a max of net double bogey. <laughs> and so you can't make more than a net double bogey on any given hole, pick it up and move it to the next tee. And, and all those are related to pace of play. Like we're obsessed with pace of play. That's our, our number one thing, but we're clear about it. It's not, you don't have to interpret that. No, that's what it is. That those are the three. So we're going to add some things. Our handicap committee is kind of fun. <laughs> Actually, we've been very fortunate to never have handicap issues uh, until recently. And, and so we're, we're going to vote on some things and have some policies around handicaps. But um, majority, you know, of this is one, we're guests at other clubs, so we're always going to abide by those club policies. But I, I actually, and it's funny that we've just had this conversation. Um, I, I'm probably in a rare uh, uh, stratosphere of people that have read guest policies. I have read guest policies of, not exaggerating, 300 clubs now. Mm-hmm. And so I I actually, without even thinking about it tonight, I, I got a little bit of authority on this now because I've had to be excruciatingly clear. And one thing that I can say with 100% certainty is that more than 50%, well more than 50% are not clear about their policies. And that's the problem. They don't have clarity. They're not built for guests today. And that's the reality of private golf in, mm-hmm. in uh, the US, but they're not clear. And as soon as they become clear about their policies and want to explain with uh, with sincerity their traditions and get people on those pages to, to, to act the way they want when they arrive at their clubs, well, then, then they'll be fine, but they're not there. And, and so I have to kind of read the tea leaves and decipher, well, what does this really mean? And, and I'll be honest with you right now, Kevin, a lot of it really means they don't want you there. 
Well, that's what a lot of it actually means is they, they have been built and had a history of racism or sexism or whatever it might be that they just don't want some people there. And, uh, a lot of people would say private clubs, that's their prerogative. I would say that's, um, bad for society. It's just not a way to live life. Well, I think something you hit on there is most private clubs don't have an identity. They, they didn't have one from the beginning other than maybe some of the issues like- Or are struggling with what their identity Yeah, was. like wanted to be a private place and that the end and didn't think strategically about the growth of that, especially over 50 or 100 years, however long the club's been around, right? And it's just evolved into someone like something that, hey, if you can stroke a check to get in here, like we're probably 99% going to let you in. And guess what? Places like that can't have a list of tradition uh, of tradition and history and rules that speak in ethos, right? They can certainly write rules that are exclusionary or dictatorship rules, but they aren't going to have an ethos of rules that are there because that's not how the club's been built. I think of pretty much every club I've been a part of with very few exceptions, you know, two exceptions being Sweetens Cove and the new golf club of St. Andrews. Like it's very clear, here's our ethos. Like the, the new golf club, whatever that principled rule is. It's just one rule, right? Whatever that is. I forget. Um, basically says, you know, we're here for the betterment of the game and bringing people into the game. And then Sweden's Cove, it's like- Yes. Yeah. In support of the game. You know, make sure anybody coming to Sweden's Cove has a good experience. That's sort of what the rules revolve around and certainly take care of the staff, right? Like treat them better than you treat anybody else. Um, and that's it. That's, you know, it's very simple. And the people- Few rules, few rules held straight. Yeah. The people brought in, like, are brought in in a way that those rules are kept in mind. You don't bring people into the club that aren't going to follow those rules. And, and that's where I appreciate those rules are around the, the club goods ideas, just treating people well and showing, you know, sacrificing a little bit of yourself for the betterment of the group. Um, yeah. Well, this, this uh, we're almost to the hour and I think we, it's a good spot to wrap yeah. up. I, 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 I don't think we're going to solve anything on it, but uh, I, I thought it was a thoughtful discussion and thanks for bringing it to the table, Kevin. It was, uh, hopefully that, you know, again, no answers, but if you're listening that these are the things that kind of engulf, what do we want? What do we want our game to be as we, you know, head into the next millennial? It, it's, it's things good, good to have the conversation. Yeah, we'll be, this is a little more ranting than we probably normally are, but we'll follow up with one down the road where we get a little more action based. Slay into my strengths. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> uh, for those, listen, we got a lot coming up in the month of June. If you're a member of New Club, a whole bunch of events. Uh, the Founders Cup registration coming out soon. That's October at uh, Big Cedar Lodge, Ozark National, Paynes Valley. Um, I hear the mountaintop part threes is unbelievable. It's a Lee Trevino, or not Lee Trevino. What is it? It's a Gary player, but everyone I've talked to be like, yeah, the, the, the big one that Nicholas built is gorgeous. This, this other one that Gary built is wild. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, and thank you. Another big thank you to our new sponsor of the podcast, NV5 Invitational. Again, the dates are July 25th through 30th. The Corn Ferry Tour is coming to Glenview, Illinois. Uh, check out Golf's Rising Stars. Tickets are available at nv5invitational.com. Professor, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. See you, Matt.